I'm planning a trip to Munich for the Oktoberfest 7th Rugby Festival. So I thought it would be interesting to learn a bit more about beer culture in Germany. And I could not think of anyone better suited to talk about this topic than my friend Florian Lekov. Florian hails from Bavaria, but currently works in Stellenbosch, so he has some understanding of the local market, as well as that in his homeland. My name is Holger Meyer, and this is Beer World. Welcome to the show, Florian. Hi, Holger. How's it? Good. So... <clears throat> You pretend to be a Bavarian, but you're actually from Hamburg. So let's start with the northerners. What kind of beer do we get in Germany besides, I mean, we, we know the big difference for me at least is the size of the glass, isn't it? It's very much true. The, the further south you get, the bigger the glasses are. <laughs> and, and, and why would you say that is? Oh, that's a very good question. Um, No, no, not sure. I mean, we talked about many things in uh, in earlier talks when we said before, and in general, there's a north north south border within the country, which shows in in many aspects, such as the former German states before Germany was states before Germany was a country like Prussia, which dominated the north and was led by Calvinists by then and the south where Bavaria just before Germany existed was a own country for centuries and centuries before the Romans even so I think coming from different German countries uniting one country is one of the reasons for the splits and the habits so I'm just guessing the southerners are more influenced by cultures from south of the Alps even, where the northerners have a bigger influx from Scandinavia and so on. Mm. I mean, even in, in the Netherlands, you get the divide of, of the small glasses and the beautiful glasses in, in Belgium, I guess. Eh? Mm. So you growing up in Munich... I mean, the most important thing, I think, is that you drink local beer. You don't drink beer from from far away. It's very much true. It's not even a question if you drink a local beer or not. It's rather the question, which local brand do you drink? Mm -hmm. And it's also not so much about beer styles as, as we call it, das Helle, which is probably close to a lager, um, is the one and only beer style which probably is good for 85% to 90% of beer consumption is Helles beer where Helles beer originated from the classical Pilsner style mm -hmm. so it's fairly young if you look into beer history but it dominates for for a long time already the Bavarian beer market yeah and is that is that a Obergierig or a Untergierig is it an ale or a lager That's a lager. Is it that's, a lager? That's, that's the closest, I would say, if mm. you translate it to a lager. Sister or brother of the Pilsner, less bitter usually. Mm. That's why some in the north of Germany regard it, of course falsely regard it as a lower quality, because hops are um, expensive. Mm. 
But remember where the hops grow, it's in Bavaria. Yeah. <laughs> so it's careful selection of the best here. Yeah. Um, it's also in its lighter hop style, it matches the bigger serving units, half a liter to a liter um, are the common sizes. And you can really describe it as easy drinking. You can drink a few of this without getting a bitter tongue too yeah. soon. And that's typically what you would drink at... Uh in, at the Oktoberfest. That's that's Oktoberfest. Oktoberfest gets its own batch of beer exclusively okay. for Oktoberfest. It's slightly stronger. Oh, really? So many okay. who are not aware of this fact and think they can drink Bavarian beer and counts in the same numbers, they they got a surprise at Oktoberfest, wondering what's happening with them because the effect is also stronger. <laughs> <laughs> So we we definitely de planning to meet up at the Oktoberfest this year, hey? Yeah. Um, yeah. So okay. Tell, and and um, what is what is the brand that you drink when you when you're at home? Well, it changes, huh? Um, the the more you learn Not about beer. Not at home in yeah. Stellenbosch, but <laughs> in <laughs> yeah. Munich. When when I visit Munich, that changes now. In the meantime, I would just guess that this craft beer movement has also an influx on me broadening the horizon of beer knowledge and looking into different ways of making beer where as as I grew up and was of legal age to drink beer it was what is that 12 <laughs> <laughs> legally that's 16, 16 years old in Bavaria yeah um, and by that age it was only Augustina Augustina beer from Munich Oldest, oldest Munich brewery from 1328. Um, Augustina, such as Paulana, comes from the from the monks with the same name, the Paulana monks, the Augustina monks, mm. etc. Um, who who made beer big in our area? And I, and I just want to point out, Florian doesn't have notes, so he knows that 1382 is the year without me <laughs> prompting it. <laughs> Or rehearsing it. Yeah. Why that, is that? that is, is that pride? I would say that's A, the best form of marketing yeah. they ever had. Augustina Premix Zero Advertisement okay. is by far the number one consumed beer in Munich. Focuses strongly on the Munich market. Did never like adding or other brands tried to expand. Yeah. But is in such a high demand that, well, it's, it's sad to still malt their own barley and, and, and things like that but I heard that their capacities are not enough anymore it's, they have such high demand of course you find it in Berlin and Hamburg now they also found yeah. out it's a lecker beer <laughs> <laughs> okay and, and we, do you know where the brewery is in the, in the city yeah it's in the inner city the quarter of town is called West End mm. no need to translate it it's both, both uh, understandable in English and German mm -hmm. It's very, very much in the center, which was the outskirts of Munich when they opened. Uh, there was the Galgenberg, the Gallow Hill, mm -hmm. where they hanged people in that times. And you see that was more on the outskirts, but now it's in the middle of the city. Um, very centric and all the people living around the Augustina Brewery, they, they smell... The barley, they smell the malt, they smell the hops when the brewery brews. There's still also Löwenbräu and Spaten Brewery, which is part of 
AB in with by now. They also have a facility, but they try to move out of the city like Paulana did now within the city limits to the edge to get their own infrastructure for the for the shipping of the beer. Mm-hmm. And tell us a little bit. I mean, you can start drinking when you're 16. What is, uh, how does that work? I mean, it's just normal. It's legal age for, yeah. for light alcoholic beverages. I'm not very much sure if that's also fine to drink wine at that age. I know it for a fact in beer because when we were 16, we never thought about wine. It was only important when we are finally allowed to drink beer. <laughs> yeah. And obviously you start in, in moderate quantities and um, Bavaria is still very much traditional, even though Munich is, is, is a huge city. But you, you grow with tradition and you limit yourself, or most people limit themselves, especially in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And entering really moderate, it's more for for having the first beer experiences. And tell us a little bit about uh, growing up in Munich. Where did you... You went to school in Munich? Everything yeah. happened there? Yeah. And then the beer experience, what's a typical experience? I mean, we know the English Garten, we know uh, Hofbrauhaus, and we know the Wiesen with mm-hmm. the Oktoberfest. But what, I mean, those are tourist attractions. What would be your experience of beer? Well, I can say as as a person growing up in Munich and surroundings, you have very much the same experiences. You just have more opportunities, mm. so more variations of those experiences. It's in some families uh, tradition that you get a, a photo when you're a young kid with a beer glass in hand and you pretend to drink beer just to have this photo. <laughs> so in early ages... Um, you get a connection if you drink it or not mm. you get a connection to the product and then I heard about some grandmothers who would give their grandchildren uh, one sip of beer after the dinner and then the the grandchildren would ask Oma uh, May I go to bed, please? So it's <laughs> it's fairly integrated in the traditions yeah. of Bavaria. Again, in, in really moderate use, I think that's important to underline. Yeah. But it's it's deep-rooted, so you grow up with it. And then any traditional um, firefighter, um, fire, firewehrfest. Festival, yeah. it's, it's a firefighter's festival, but it's more like a reason to get together yeah. once a month is connected to beer and all sort of local festivals are connected to beer and we have also one branch of the family who lives not in, in Oberbayern but Mittelfranken which is a part of, of Bayern, Bavaria and that's the village is called a Markt which means a market and that means that village had the market right. And now the, say, upper tiers of, of that village, of the society, on that, on that festival day, when the merchants came from other villages to present their goods or offer their, their duties, people like yeah, the village leaders, let's say, also in my family, they had to pay the visitors beer 
So when the merchants arrive to the market, people like my, what is that, great-grandfather probably and, mm. and upwards, they had to pay the visitors one mass, which is one liter mm. of beer. So I cannot imagine a place where beer is more integrated. Mm. I mean, I can... Re One of the memories that I've got is that if you watch the workers uh, at, at the tea break, they drink a can of beer. I mean, that sounds like it's, even today, is it still allowed or is it? Of course not allowed, but it's common <laughs> practice. Um, in very traditional companies, until I would say five, six years ago, it was allowed that the worker drinks up to two light beers for lunch break, Yeah. Or one vice beer, let's say, for lunch break. Um, with the globalized world, this is disappearing clearly. Yeah. However, on the construction <laughs> sites, it's more more than you should still come and practice. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and and the other beer styles. Obviously, we we think everybody in Munich drinks vice beer. Yeah. That's maybe because Weissbier comes from Munich, as yeah. it is. It's, it's a signature style of beer from the city of Munich. It's very popular. It's, it never reached the volumes of Helles, because you cannot drink as many Weissbiers mm. as you can drink Helles. The, the Helle, the lager style, is more easygoing, and after two, maximum three, three Weiss, you probably are saturated. Yeah. And that's the reason. So you also don't get that at the Oktoberfest because they have a special beer then? Yeah, I mean, at the Oktoberfest you get anything from from uh, sprites, uh, water, sparkling water. Yeah. You by now get Kaipirinha mass in some, some locations. <laughs> um, so the Oktoberfest is a very international event and therefore yeah. you no. probably you can drink a bottle of champagne in some tents. Okay. That's that's let's say evolving traditions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But we have dunkles beer as well, a dark beer. Also the weiss beer can be a dark weiss beer. There's so many specialty beers in Bavaria. There's thousands of small breweries. And as there's thousands of breweries, there's hundreds of specialty beers which I'm not aware of, like smoky beers. Etc. Etc. And the Urbock and yeah, seasonal beers <coughs> like Urbock, Maibock, Merzen, mm. um, any or anything seasonal normally means more alcohol. In yeah, in another reason. And I, I, I mean, are those still are they still still keeping to those tradition that they keep them seasonal for a reason? Yes. So that makes it special, I guess. Yeah, it's it's really still seasonal. Of course, they could produce it around the yeah. year, but as as it's rooted in the traditions again, you drink the Doppelbock, which is called Fastenbier, the beer to feast. Which might be a bit misleading. Not to feast, too fast. Too fast. Yeah. Too fast. It's it's really rich beer, yeah. but it's really to replace food in that period. And, And the, the story of the of the beer goes that the monks in Munich, it was the Paulana monks by that time. They were used to beer. Beer was a stable comp component of the daily diet, and so they had to think about something how can we 
stop eating or eat very little during these around round about six weeks. And obviously the solution was easy. Let's drink more beer and <laughs> make it more rich. Mm. So they added more malts to the recipe. Um, I think after two Doppelbock beer, you you saturated. And what they did then is they sent it to the Pope because only the Pope could allow them to drink that because it had kind of, quite of a kick already that time, like it still has. So they sent it over the Alps. But that was in times where there was no refrigeration and no stabilization of beers and whatsoever. So the beer turned sour on the way to Rome. And the Pope smelled it and said, yeah, yeah, that's allowed. That's nothing <laughs> evil. If they want to drink it, let them. <laughs> and since then, it was allowed to drink this very strong beer during the fast. Yeah, and that's normally the, the period before Easter, isn't it? That's between, uh, yeah, that's before Easter. And it's normally six weeks, six weekends. Um, it starts with Carnival. Yeah. Uh, carnivale means yeah, stop eating meat and that's what you're supposed to do in that time yeah. and then instead of fasting food you f I mean instead of fasting alcohol like we often do we just stop eating and just yes. drink heavy strong beers but that's and again <laughs> in the, in, in today is not possible anymore so of many people do the same with alcohol now yeah uh, traditions that's global traditions yeah, yeah. and in in uh, How much normal Pilsner Lager do you see in Munich? Hmm, well, it exists. <clears throat> probably, the visitors. Be probably because the company, or now you can say the company, AB InBev, has a good sales force. Yeah. They place it. Um, and there are absolutely some, some good Pilsners in that mm. portfolio. Like you get chick. Pilsner sometimes in the shelves for those who like it the, the German Pilsners like Beck's or any other German beers um, you get Belgian beers I mean by now it's a really international offering in, in stores that you also might find here that specialize in that categories but you'd never find a Budweiser from, from the US only from Czech Only the, <clears throat> the original one, yeah. yeah. I remember that. They wouldn't... It's not Reinhardtsgebot and then you don't let it in. Yeah, ach, that's, that just doesn't that's sell. another story, the Reinhardtsgebot. It's, it's similar with, with the gin craze in, in former times when people just tried to hide bad quality by adding flavors, like some brewers might add some cherry flavor to a beer that had some funny notes. Yeah. Um, and because it was going wild, one of the reasons was because that was going wild, then went to Reinhardt Gebot and said, this is only, that's the only allowed ingredients just to secure the quality standard. Yeah, it's like a GMP or HACCP <coughs> nowadays. Mm. That was their measure of, of regulation. Um, we get Corona beer, which is clearly not Reinhardt's Gebot, it's with mice. Mm. Um, But there's just no demand for Budweiser. <laughs> it's yeah. not our beer style. <laughs> Even though it's Germans, hey, Anhäuser Busch. Yeah. <laughs> I mean. They're German immigrants. Yeah. 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 I mean, all over the world, Tsingtao is also German, isn't mm. it? It is, yeah. Um, 
So I think that the Germans have certainly in, influenced the, the brewing industry worldwide. And going a bit further into out of Munich now, I mean, we we had a nice discussion about drinking local, and I think I saw that again when you came to visit Hillcrest Tops. You said which is the local beer, where I think in in, in countries like ours we always want to experience things from afar. You want to drink what's local, and and I think it's an important, especially with a craft beer, that you support the local your local uh, beer, and you obviously do that in Munich, and it's a it's a nice German tradition to support the local beers. Um, and if, you, if you're if going, I mean, if you travel, you obviously ask for the local beer. You don't then insist on drinking Augustina when you're in, in Hamburg. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's um, <clears throat> also a way to understand the people, like you say, the sizes of the beer are different let's yeah. say in Cologne or, or Hamburg and then it's also another way of drinking beer and it, it comes with a whole cultural environment yeah. so I think if you want to understand something about the local culture, drink the local beer the way yeah. the locals do and it also gives the local breweries especially where there's no Reinheitsgebot it gives them a fantastic opportunity to show what they can source product-wise and, and make a statement mm. about their surroundings. And, uh, I mean, you've been in South Africa for a couple of years now. Have you have you picked up anything in, in Munich about craft beer the way we have seen it in the Cape and, and now in the rest of the country? Yeah, definitely. I mean, as, as with all the global trends, mm. it all started probably in California and uh, that's where I saw the first craft beers and had big question marks in my face. What are you doing to beer and why <laughs> is there a flat tire on the label? What does it mean now? And by now that's, uh, as I heard, a, a successful brand yeah. over there and and that's just came out of out of being curious and that wave even hit Bavaria and its traditions where the young brewmasters or younger brewmasters, they studied in the classical Weinstefan University north of Munich. Then they maybe added an apprenticeship in one of the local breweries to get the real craftsmanship. Mm. That's something that where they stand out, they get the real craftsmanship. They have to do that for three years, plus their studies, to become a real accepted brewmaster. Mm. So, so they studies at the university, not... Not, yeah, yeah. It's probably three years at the university, depending on your courses, and another three years apprenticeship. So you invest six times at six years of your life mm. in learning how to make beer before you start. Before you start. And but they they also travel and they also seen that you can do more with beer than mm. just three ingredients. And Let's say they expand the limits of Reinheitsgebot at the moment as far as you can with different kinds of hops and hop mixtures. <coughs> and you have this craft beer, even in Munich, there's craft beer festivals. So it's it's the same like here. It's just different. In the US, there was a need for craft beer because the average beer quality was uh, very average. <laughs> And where in Munich or, or all of Germany, beer quality was always very good. And craft beer is just now adding another sort of style to the basket. Yeah. 
And I mean, your the 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 Germans are also experimenting with hops, and I mean the Mandarino hops, which I think uh, Wolfgang uses to brew his IPA at mm. CBC. Mm. That is a hops from Germany. It's not yeah. from the west coast of of the USA or somewhere. Yeah, that's. <clears throat> I mean, as far as I know, there's different hop growing regions in the world, but those. Halatau hops, they have a really big demand and they're generating new plantations. It's a very limited space they have, mm. but in their space they're enlarging. Uh, and it seems to be a business worthwhile when you listen to those uh, hop farmers there in the region. They, they sound quite happy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. Um And and the rest of Germany, I mean the different styles. We we obviously got in, in Bamberg. There's a lot of Rauchbier and Cologne. These interesting beers in Cologne as well. Yeah, it's 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 again uh, funny to see how you have a really good understanding about different beer styles in Germany, where the average person like me in Munich never thinks about other beer styles in Germany. <laughs> There's purely no need for it. Yeah. Obviously, as you travel, maybe for holiday or for your business trips, as I said, you try new beers and you have in Cologne, you have Obergeriges beer like the Kölsch, which is then more closely related to a Weiss beer actually than yeah. a lager, um, which is consumed in very small portions and mostly also more chilled than the beers. Small glasses, yeah. Small glasses, more chilled than Bavarian mm. beer. Uh, so it's more easy going and then to have apparently big wars between Kölsch beer and the neighbor city Düsseldorf Alt where for somebody from Bavaria it's not clear to see what their argument is but, <laughs> but they it's, can see it's local pride it's really what yeah. it boils down and where to to the north it's really Pilsner style mm. like in, I mean the, all the traditional beer brands in the north they are more bitter, more hoppy, really dry in style. Mm. You can, and there, it's specs from Bremen, or they're named after the cities like Flensburg, mm. which are very common brands, or Jeva, it's another name of a city, actually. Um, brands like this, also consumed in smaller classes. They're traditionally with a class of Kornschnaps, mm -hmm. which is the German, German, uh, sibling between vodka and whiskey you can say mm -hmm. style wise so that's what you don't do for example in Bavaria don't drink a shooter with your beer mm -hmm. there they do it with every round they order they, yeah. they order corn and a beer <laughs> and that that works on you quite quickly <laughs> if you're not used to it certainly I, I worked in, in Leipzig after in, in, when was it in the 90s And these guys, every beer, there was some a, sh a quarter, and I kept falling asleep, and I couldn't understand why I kept falling asleep. <laughs> Obviously, I did, but I mean, there was no end to those, and it was probably more than one with each beer. Yeah, the closer they got to to the East Block countries, eh? Uh -huh. Yeah. So their beer tradition is again different. What, however, if you look a bit in beer history in Germany. Successful breweries in, in Hamburg were all of a sudden called Bavaria. And why? Because the Bavarian beer styles became so attractive 
in the rest of the world, especially the idea of of Helles beer making our pills more palatable, mm. more easy drinking, um, but still rich of flavor. That was, I think, making an international success, and there's quite a few Bavaria breweries around the world. In Holland, there used to be one we are, obviously worked in, in South Africa. Yeah. Um, I think in South America, there's a big big one called Bavaria. Yes. Um, yeah, obviously, but the, the, the Pilsner is the one that that has dominated the world, I guess, in, mm. this, in, in or the lager, which is also a traditional German style, I guess, and mm. the origin might be next door, but certainly, I think, developed by the Germans. Um, and, I mean, you can, can, not being a northerner, I mean, would you even drink a Pilsner? Yes, of course. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> As a beer lover, <laughs> there is an opportunity for every beer. Yeah. Um, I might even once a year drink a Guinness, you know, just because I feel like it. So, mm. and sometimes a pills, and especially that smaller portion of pills, can be something really refreshing. Mm. Definitely. Okay, and and. Traveling to to Bavaria, what is what is what do what do the beer fans have to visit? Yeah, I would say it just depends where you are. You just ask for the very next local brewery, as there is one every let's say five villages. There is a brewery, and they will have their version of of the common beers such as Weiss beers and Helles and Bock beer specialties. Um, And then the best way to really experience beer is to look for a traditional festival on the countryside mm -hmm. that basically consists of one big beer tent, a band which is here called Umpa Band with traditional music mm. and traditional foods, of course. Food is always excellent to have a balance with the beer. And then there might be some surrounding offers for the children or not. But there you can A, understand the best way beer is consumed. It's also not this big party like Oktoberfest. It's more get-together. Mm. And it's it's really friendly that defines the Bavarian beer culture. No matter to which table or bench you're coming, there will be always space for you as long Anything uh, below five people on one bench, there still can be space made up to, up to seven people on one bench. And especially if you're a foreigner, um, you get welcomed and get introduced quite quickly to the local <laughs> local way of beer okay. drinking. After that, you're an expert. Yeah. And tell us a little bit about beer garden culture, because that's not really something we, we understand, I think. Mm. I mean, first of all, it's self-service, isn't it? Yeah, the beer garden culture, it's it's rooted in the brewery's need to sell beer uh -huh. quickly. So that demand was created by the producer. Yeah. But it tuned in with the traditions, I think. <laughs> it was accepted very quickly. Yeah. So the, it comes from the from the old days again where there was not proper refrigeration, where we got our eyes from a little sidearm of the river Isa to store the beer cool. Um, there was no fridge around, there was no freezer. So 
refrigeration was very limited and then they brewed the beer and after beer brewing it need needed to be consumed as soon as possible so they opened this what you can say restaurants very next to the breweries and the people were basically sitting above the beer the beer was cellared below the beer garden to keep the temperature constant and as chilled as possible and on top they just added some chairs and, and furniture so people could sit and they got the beer directly from the beer cellar um, and what's a very famous famous thing for beer garden or signature thing for beer garden is Kastanienbaum what's mm -hmm. that in English yeah that tree grows big big green leaves um The reason why they planted it is because it doesn't root very deep. Oh, okay. So the roots don't go in the beer cellar. Mm -hmm. So this, the surface, having the benches and the big uh, one liter classes of beer and, and the castanian trees, um, now defines the beer garden, but it all has practical reasons. Mm -hmm. If you fill directly from the, from the big barrel, One liter is far more easy to pour than a yeah. 200 milliliter or 250 milliliter glass, which even exists in Munich. If you're really traditional, you can order a quartel, and only if you order a quartel, the waitress won't be angry with you. If you order a small beer, they will look at you and shake their head. <laughs> so you have to, okay. you have to understand the lingo yeah. in order to get what you want. Yeah. So and the beer garden, you come. Mostly with the public transport, which mm -hmm. is really convenient. And before there was public transport, you just walked there. Mm. You had more time. Um, today you still can take the bicycle. So it's always avoiding the car. Mm -hmm. Because when you go to the beer garden, you know you're going to drink beer and probably not just one. And another thing is you're allowed to bring your own food. So it's actually... Designed for drinking beer and include as many people as possible uh, for that experience. Um, you don't need to pay a waitress. You don't need to pay a chef in the kitchen. Um, you just got to pay the guy who pours the beer basically mm -hmm. into the glasses and one that rinses them. And you can make a beer garden. So it's a cheap way of selling beer. And that is including everybody who wants to come and that's again reflects to the cultural side where you come to the table everybody is welcome it just mm. fits the culture um, however today there are sections where you can order where you don't have to get up and there's also full food offerings of all the traditional dishes some people might come with their car and drink alcohol free beer so mm. Things are changing, but it's the most common thing to do on a sunny day to grab the bicycle and meet your friends in the beer garden. Mm -hmm. Can you still do that? I mean, that's still a big tradition. Yes. Okay. That's, that's, you just wait for that sunny day. I yeah. mean, it's not South Africa. You wait for your sunny days. And as soon as the weather seems to be quite all right, you chat to your friends and you just decide over which beer garden you're meeting yeah. at. And what is, what is some, some interesting ones to visit? In Munich. Well, as a, as a local, but more especially as a visitor, 
I would say go to the bigger ones. Go to Hirschgarten, which is close to the castle of Nymphenburg in town. It's it's eight thousand seater. Eight thousand Just to get seater. this ex experience, see eight thousand people drinking beer. I think <laughs> you don't see it very often <laughs> no. on this planet. No. And uh, the second biggest one is the most beautiful one. It's called Chinesischer Turm, Chinese Tower. There's a little pagode in the Englischer Garten, very much centric in the city. And it's a 7,000-seater, so you still meet quite some people. Where the Hirschgarten is mostly visited by locals, the Chinesische Turm, the Chinese Tower, is a very international beer garden. You meet the whole world there. Yeah. The band is playing in the tower, and uh, then you can have a walk in the garden, which is the biggest inner-city park in the world, actually. You can have a walk after there, and... Get rid of some of the beer effects. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, interesting. Eh? And uh, now you're working for a distillery. How did that come about? Yeah, that's purely by choice. <laughs> um, and it's, it's fairly much related to drinks and to food and to good things to be enjoyed. And As I'm a trained chef, and I worked in different parts of the world as a chef, I was always out for the best possible joy you can have with something you can eat or drink. It's it's If you're fortunate, you probably can do that without wor working, but working in a related industry gives you the opportunity to see different ways of enjoying all over the world and where the food is one thing, the drinks is the other half of the experience mm. because it's always both together. And yeah, I mean, after studies, I wanted to see a vineyard and that vineyard happened to be in South Africa and wine is obviously a wonderful product. Um, and it was one incident that I encountered spirits um, when the distillery in Stellenbosch opened that had nothing to do with gin it was distilling uh, the grape skins and other materials for kappa and some other specialty products and none of them were on my list of things I would ever buy or consume however as already as a chef I got used to drinking gin because When you finish your 16, 17-hour workday, there's only one place that's open, and that's the bar. And the bartender, actually, is the only one who understands you as a chef because he thinks the same way about flavors, just in a liquid form. Mm -hmm. And then you begin to experience the spirit as another kind of ingredient. And... Yeah, when there was the opportunity to possibly make gin here in South Africa, I was asked if I could imagine it, and it took me less than a week to decide for, yes, seeing the incredible ingredients that grow here, especially in the Western Cape, with all the herbs. Any, any Sunday walk you make outside, you can rub the leaves of the bushes and just smell what they contain, and there's so much undiscovered ingredients here 
that it seems to be a never-ending journey when it comes to distilling anything with herbs like a gin is. And let's see what else comes next. Mm -hmm. And uh, <clears throat> how big is gin in, in Germany? Yeah, it's the, the spirit to drink. Really? Um, okay. Of course, whiskey not, is not also very Bacardi strong. Cola. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Bacardi Cola probably is also a good seller, <laughs> just guessing here. But if it comes to your, your premium spirits, it's still whiskey. Rum is super niche, but bigger than here. Um, and then gin, gin, gin. There's hundreds of gin distilleries and hundreds of brands in that segment. And they all sell the products. Um, and it's more opening up rather than some closing. It's a really dynamic market over there in Germany, such as in Spain, such as in the UK, and the smaller countries like Belgium and the Netherlands um, and parts of Italy. And that's the countries I just named. It's the countries where the chin originates from mm -hmm. as we have it today. So it's not a big surprise that it's becoming popular again in those countries. Yeah. And and you exporting a lot of gin to back home from well, from Stellenbosch? Depends what you define a lot. I mean, we are. I mean, most of your gin still goes still a small distillery. Yeah. Um, most of the gin we sell in South Africa. Okay. I think the weather is also the best for drinking yeah. G and Ts um, quite any day of the year is inviting. <laughs> Yeah. And yeah, obviously there's a big popular, a big big demand also overseas for more foreign chains as the market is flooded with thousands of brands. Um, the more foreign, the better. So it's two trends. It's a the more local, mm -hmm. like a chin from Munich in Munich, distilled with hops. Uh, so also rooted in the beer culture mm -hmm. again. Or you have something very exotic to compete the main brands from from your big um, spirits companies. So something South African or African distilled in a traditional way has a very big potential overseas there, especially as there's so many tourists coming to South Africa um, associating something positive and, and associating good food, good wine, good spirits with this country. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, and quickly talk us through your, your gin. You've got three gins. 100% juniper berry, citrus infusion, and African botanicals. They, it's, you said it's a London dry gin? Or is yeah. it a dry gin? That's, that can be quite confusing okay. nowadays with the terms. Um, as the London dry style, in my opinion, has the same reason to exist as the Reinheitsgebot in beer has. It was used as a measure, as a quality standard to define gins. And yeah, you just, you mentioned the word craft gins. And mm. if you want to define something in craft, in my opinion, it should contain some craftsmanship. Mm-hmm. It's not just because you distill less or you make another recipe. It's not craft. Mm. You can call yourself craft, but craft comes from craftsmanship and that 
implements that you know what you're doing, mm -hmm. that you use the right procedures, and that you have a broad understanding of the category as such, and then you will find out how to name your product as well, because you know the different styles. For example, if you had anything sweet to your gin after distillation, you should call it an old tom gin when it has the sweet touch on the palate. For some gin categories, there is a content of sugar allowed, not in the London Dry Gin. That's where the, where the word dry comes mm -hmm. from. And London Dry Gin simply means that there's no sugar and everything is distilled and everything is distilled together. And then again, that has more historical reasons than reasons of production because our other two gins um, are also distilled gins but not all the ingredients get distilled at the same time. And that again has to do with craftsmanship. So if you look even in your ultra-premium brands from the big competition, from your international players, their products do actually the same because they also figured out it's a more advanced way of distillation. And you can now state the most prominent names besides your Tango Rays and your Bombays they're not long and dry because they distill in separate runs different sort of ingredients that need different temperatures, that need different macerations, etc., etc. And this is where the knowledge about ingredients comes in. To achieve your goal in the spirit, and this is where the craft is the chance, it's a very personal product. For example, in our bottles you see a signature that says... Rolf Zeitvogel, Master Distiller. And what you get in this bottle is the way he, as a master distiller and originator of that idea, envisions the gin to be. It reflects the way he likes to drink it. That means that it's a more personalized product. It also means you can never reach the or it's unlikely to reach the heights of a Tango Ray Gin because if it's more personalized, it's also more niche. Mm -hmm. It's not as common anymore. So here with a 100% Juniper Gin, yes, you have a lot in Tri Gin, but it's even not written on the label because it really doesn't matter. It's a very confusing. <laughs> Some people still think it must be from London. <laughs> uh, some then name the chins Cape Try or whatever Try or Munich Try, you name it. California Try, doesn't matter. But that naming is, is not an existing guideline anymore because there's also many producers who decide over their own styles and then place it in the same shelf like the Try, try Chins. I think this is maybe room for potential like they have it in wine or beer to, to improve information for the gin lovers. However, as it's so personalized, you rather buy the spirit from one person or a group of people and you buy their idea how the product should be. So the 100% juniper gin is only distilled with juniper berries. And many people say, oh yeah, isn't that the original gin? And yeah, well, it's sort of that. It comes from that idea. But then again, original gin, as, as soon as people could afford spices, 
they used additional spices purely to hide sharp alcohols and bad alcohol qualities. Mm -hmm. So now if you go the way around again, the way backwards, and you only use juniper, you got to make sure you work with really smooth and and essential oil-rich ingredients so you have enough A, enough flavor in the product, and B, you still have a smooth chin. Like all these three chins are... Um, so smooth you can drink them neat if you want which again I come to the master distiller the master distiller comes from the black forest of Germany where they drink fruit schnapps fruit spirits and they they drink them only neat they never mix them so in his understanding of a spirit he created a gin in a way that the gin is according to those quality standards. It must taste like the ingredient stated. Mm -hmm. It must be smooth. It mustn't give you a headache the next day, meaning a clear mm -hmm. spirit, a clean spirit. Mm -hmm. And that's that's where you see how important the people are in in this segment. And um, I know Olf is not a big fan of the word craft because many people might, mis might misuse that term mm -hmm. in order to get more money for their product. Then again, um, we haven't found uh, a much better word. You know, yeah. can say artisanal or whatsoever. Yeah, or small batch. I the, guess. the small batch, still, if you say crafts, probably yeah. the most understandable yeah. term. And it's the same problem with beer, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's where it mm. fairly relates to beer. And some distillers say, don't put me in the same category like craft beer for mm. that very reason. However, I think in the chin, chin side, we have the same structures like in the craft beer, mm. therefore. And we have then the citrus infusion chin. Mm -hmm. And what happens there is the citrus and the juniper are two different distillations and macerations as well. Purely because the citrus oil from the peel has a, another neat distillation um, than the juniper berry has. And also, it's it's a natural compound component. It's if the juniper. Now you have lemons, you have oranges, and during the season, those ingredients change their flavor profiles. So, do you want to have a seasonal gin each time you bottle, or do you have an idea of a gin like the citrus infusion gin, where you say it always is orangey, almost sweet in the nose, and then it gives you a fruity zestiness on the palate. It's a refreshing experience. And that is a fairly, fairly precise idea. We have our own terms how we describe that then internally, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, which might be misleading because, you know, like the sommeliers talk of candy floss and whatsoever. We in, in production have similar terms to describe it. Um, that's, that is a promise we make. Anytime we bottle the spirit, it has this profile because it's our very idea of how the spirit should be. Now, if I would make this London dry and by the same recipe, distill it all the time, you would have 12 different recipes a year. Mm -hmm. And then you're not sure what you're getting when you open the mm -hmm. bottle. Mm -hmm. And that is the strength of the small batch. We distill into small buckets. We can then fill the small buckets into bigger bu buckets and then finally make the blend. So we have a really precise control over our recipe and yet everything is distilled. 
So this is where the, the strength is in comparison to continuous distillation that might make you Gilby's gin, which is a sound product, but the whole, the, the very end, the other side of, of gin production. And then with the African botanicals, with, a, with seven ingredients, plus water, eight, um, plus alcohol, nine, that gets even more tricky to always get the same flavor profile in the bottle again. The buhu grows with the water, it grows with the sun and always comes out different. So that again, it's it's a more precise attempt not to make it long and dry, but everything distilled by its own and then make your vision in, in the bottle. And it's proven to be fairly successful. Such are brands like Hendrix or Rangpurchin from Tango Ray to name the big guys. They do the same, and it's very successful. It's craftsmanship. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> where can they find out more about these? This is triple three Yeah. And you based in Stellenbosch on the Blauklippen Estate. Yeah, exactly. And That's... Uh, do you, are you open for visitors there? Yeah, it's. Uh, You can find out about the gin on triple3.ca.za. Mm -hmm. We are fortunate to have a spirits room at the vineyard. At Blauklippen, there's a spirits room where you can come seven days a week and there's always somebody open for questions who makes a guided gin tasting with you. Um, even you our name relates to the vineyards. When we launched our distillery, uh, launched our gins, um, it was the 333rd anniversary of the vineyards, and oh. 333, it's a triple three, it's a lucky okay. number. Oh, <laughs> I forgot to ask about that. And then in, in, your, in your gin room or your spirit room, uh, it's better to come on a bicycle, hey? <laughs> Back in well, Munich. <laughs> you, you can have um, a professional tasting like you can have on uh, on the wine side. You can have a professional tasting on the spirit side and then take the bottle home. Mm. Um, in Stellenbosch, we have great Uber connectivity mm. in short distances. Um, or you find the designated driver. Yeah. yeah. And what else is on the farm? There's a vineyard in, yeah, the, in a hotel, eh? Um, there's a vineyard, which also, where Rolf also is the manager, so okay. here comes again the, the product side in place. Um, he has many specialties. Like we do have three recipes for the gin. He has more than one version of a, let's say, Sinfandel wine or, or a Malbec wine. There's... He always thinks out of the box, so there's many specialties you can taste on site, on the wine side. Um, we have brandy as well. We do offer some of the kappas for those enthusiasts that appreciate a kappa. We barrel age them as well. Um, we make we make pear spirits, which Ooh. are soon on the shelf again. Mm -hmm. um, which we tried the other day. We gave, we had a try of a dry pear spirit. Classical European style um, from the cultivar Williams, and then we also now will make a sweetened version, which you had the other other night. And yeah, watch the space; it's gonna be there soon. It's it's also who we are, the distillation 
the distilleries open um, since 2012 already. Mm -hmm. So we're not learning how to distill. There's actually a rich basket of spirits that we mastered already. Okay. And thank you for joining us today. And we really look forward to seeing you in, in Munich at the Oktoberfest. And you will show us or take us to to one of the beer gardens. I think that that will be the highlight. Thank Ab you. Absolutely. <laughs> Cheers, Holger. Okay. Thank you for listening to our stories here online. In the show notes, you will also find a link where you can subscribe to become part of our community and be notified when we upload our latest content.